Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. And I, I always think I'm going to finish this series on radical grace, but another insight that I feel you should have comes into being. And so I want to read from Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, and where should we read from? Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint, neither is he weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay, many of you know that scripture. Some of you have it hanging in your kitchen. What is it speaking about? Let's, let's get the background picture. This was written to the captives in Babylon. When it was written to them is another whole story. Just enough to say this was written to those who had been taken captive to Babylon. You might know the story, you might not. We will not go into it here enough to say that in Ju Jerusalem, the people of God had entered into terrible idolatry, entering into a covenant pact with the powers of darkness, and, and, and they were taken away from Jerusalem, away from the center of their faith and hope and covenant, and placed into Babylon under the cruel dictator Nebuchadnezzar. And there they are going to stay for 70 years in which the Lord will speak deeply into their hearts. So get inside the heads of these people because this, I say again, was written to them. This is what they read when they were sitting there uprooted from their land, uprooted from the center of their faith, Jerusalem and the temple, they're, they're in a strange land. They're surrounded by people of a strange language. 
and even though the Lord has told them to settle down, you'll be here for a generation. But still, it, it's a strange place to be. And they have been demoted at, at their worst back in Jerusalem. They had thought of themselves as the people of God, and that they were. But now they are the conquered people of God. That, that, that sent a shudder through them to put those two words together, people of God and conquered. It didn't make sense to them. They're conquered. And they're surrounded now by a culture that arises from worshipping the idols that they had played with back there in Jerusalem and the terrible darkness and all that went with the worship of these ghastly idols is now pressuring them and all of Babylon is pressuring them to become Babylonian, to throw in their lot, even change their names to Babylonian names. They feel disconnected from, how can I put it, what ought to be. We ought to be back in Judah. We ought to be in Jerusalem. We ought, we should. But here they're very disconnected from all of the oughts and the shoulds. And they're facing what is, which is very different. And they were people plunged into such despair, it bordered on depression, serious depression. And in the Psalms, it describes them as they were there. And the, the Babylonians had heard of these strange people who sang joyous songs to their God and sang songs that had within the song a, a power to mend and to heal. And so it says in the Psalms how the Babylonians said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Well, let's hear it. We've heard about it. Now you're here. Take your harps, your sort of guitars down from off the trees where they're hanging and sing to us. And they said, we can't sing. They've lost their joy. They've lost their song. That's where they're at. And in the verse I just read, we get inside their head, at least to begin with, and they're saying... My way is hidden from the Lord. My judgment is passed over from my God. Now, I want you to think about this. First of all, when we say, because he says here, why do you say? Why do you speak? When we say, when we speak, the first words that we actually say and speak uh, occur within our head. You understand? It's an inner dialogue. We're talking to ourselves in our thoughts. And then uh, it goes a step further and we actually say it. And so these people were sitting in little groups, if you could get the picture, in the sort of ghettos in which they had been placed as the prisoners who now were going to settle down and become part of Babylon. And so in their little Jewish ghetto, they're sitting and sitting in what was now gradually becoming a marketplace or a 
coffee shop or whatever they're sitting and, and they're discussing and they're saying now. It's been on their mind. They've dwelt upon this for a long time, but now they're actually saying it. My way is hid from God. And, and if you, you see them in groups at street corners and when they're now trying to plant and trying to become part of some future, but their conversation returns to it, our way is hidden from God. Hold that in mind. It's one thing to think something. It's quite another to say it. There's a commitment in saying. And they're saying it. And they're saying my path, or, or what well, another word would be my, my lot, how life has fallen out to me, my present situation. Or some of a sort of gambling mind might say this is the deck that life has dealt me. Um, you, you get the picture. They're, they're saying here we are, and look at us, look at us. They said this is what we've been dealt now, this is where we find ourselves. God, he, he, we're hidden from God's eyes. Or how could I put it? God's lost track of me. I, I've, I've dropped out of God's radar. He doesn't know where I am. He only understood and looked at us when we were in uh, Judah, when we were in Jerusalem. Uh, but now, up here in Babylon, God, God, we're hidden from God. God. God has forgotten us. We're no longer part of his thoughts. God's disregarded our situation. He doesn't see us we're alone in the world up here in Babylon. God doesn't care two hoots about us. We're lost to him in the wilderness of this place. This is what they were saying. Our way is hidden from God. God doesn't see us. Now, of course, if you, you take that out into the context of the whole Bible, what they were saying, God has stopped loving us. His eye does not see us. His heart doesn't care. We're alone here. God doesn't love us anymore. His love doesn't reach to us in this place. We, we no longer enjoy covenant loving kindness. We no longer feel and know the faithfulness of God's love. That, that's what they're saying. That was what they talked about in their little groups when their heads were together and they're trying to make some sense out of this life that they now find themselves in. But they went on and they said that, that my, my way is hidden from me and my judgment is passed over from my God. Judgment, that's something that a, a judge gives in a court of law. He passes a judgment. When, when the judge brings down the gavel, says, this is my judgment, that's it. Well, they said, God is the judge of all. And my, my right, my, my cause, or what can I, my case, I, I, I laid it before God. I prayed, I said, Lord, look, look at this situation. It's not right, it's not right, it's not fair. I know that we strayed back there in Jerusalem, but where we are now, this we've been uprooted from everything we called life. It's not fair. It's not right. And I present my cause. I present my case before the judge of all the earth. 
to pass the judgment in our favor and get us out of here. This ought not to be. This should not be. Oh, God, hear our prayer, you see. But nothing happened. And they're saying, God does not look at my case. God, the judge, simply passes over that which I presented to him. I guess he considers me hopeless. I'm not even worth entering in as a docket in the court. It's not worth it. I'm, I'm not worthy of his consideration. That's what they're saying. My way, my way, my judgment. I'm hidden. You're passing me over. You're ignoring me. You're ignoring my prayers. You're not answering me. Here we are stuck in this miserable situation with everything topsy-turvy, upside down. If you cared, if you really loved us, you, you would judge in our favor. You would deliver us out of this mess. But as it is, you, you passed over. You didn't, you didn't even open the folder. You don't care. That had been the thoughts they dwelt on for a long time, but now they're talking about it and they're saying it. And the result of this situation, he refers to it in verse 30. He, well, actually, verse 29, he talks about the faint and those who have no might. Then he specifies in very picturesque language, he says, even the youth, the young men shall faint and be weary the young men shall utterly fall. So he's talking about youths, young men, and he's talking about them in a state of faint and utterly fall, weary. It's interesting that the word there, that the Hebrew language that Isaiah wrote in when it says youths and young men, it's, it's speaking of a very special kind of young men. I suppose the only way we could truly understand that word today is uh, they would be Navy SEALs. They would be special op, you know? It, it would be those who could take on a triathlon. Does any of this ring a bell? These were characters that were in the absolute peak of health and strength and vitality and vigor. Young men, but more than young men, special young men. Young men who just radiated life in terms of physical strength and prowess who could run and swim and bicycle in a triathlon, climb mountains and come to the finish line looking like the same way as they started. That's, that's what it's saying here. The, the best that your human strength can ever attain to. That's what it's saying. Well, the result of where you're at is that even those who are at the peak of their natural focused strength have come to the point of absolute exhaustion, weariness, 
They, they, they're fainting by the way. They're dropping out like flies. You can't stand this kind of life, can you? You're exhausted. Your, your, your natural strength, you see, is limited. I don't care how great your natural strength, the strength of not only your body, but the strength of your mind, the strength of your emotions, the strength of your will and resolve and intention, keep naming it. There's a limit to that. It's natural. It's natural. And all that is natural has a limit. It stops. Can't go any further. And he said, these who had trained their natural strength to the limit, well, they found the limit. And now they have no strength. They're fainting, by the way. They, they are utterly, boy, he knows how to say it, doesn't he? Utterly falling. They're not just sitting down exhausted. They're sprawled flat on their face. They're utterly falling. They're, they're running and getting slower and slower by the minute. They can't, they can't do it. They stumble. They fall. They're too tired to go on. They're, they've run out of fuel, the natural fuel. They've run out. So they've dropped out of the race. They're weary to the nth degree. They're incapable of continuing. I mean, put all those words together. I mean, they're, they're exhausted. They're, they're stumbling. They're falling. They're dropping out. They're too tired. They're exhausted. Incapable. That's the picture. As the Lord sums up the people as they are in Babylon, as they've, they've come to the conclusion that God no longer loves, God no longer cares, God doesn't care, too hoots what happens to them. And now they're saying it, and it's a murmuring, and, and the Lord says, just look at you. You've run out of strength. Right there, you're, you're, you're sitting without a song in your mouth, without joy in your heart. That's where you've come to. Listen, and there's a sense I need a lot longer on this, but just let me say it because it's interesting. The thoughts, please hear me, the thoughts that we choose to dwell on, you do understand you don't have to think the thoughts that you think. We choose to think. The thoughts that we choose to dwell on, which then become the words that we speak. I don't know if you ever noticed it, but immediately, I'm not saying... 10 weeks down the road, immediately, let me speak a negative word. Let me speak a word of unbelief. Let me just toss out the idea that God is not faithful to his word. Let me speak of my miserable situation and how bad can it be? And every cell in your mortal body is immediately, immediately weakened. It's amazing. 
I've seen this with my own eyes as my wife Nancy is a naturopathic doctor has, has uh, been researching the energy flows in the human body and and, and it, it, she, she has proven it I've watched it as just a thought a thought that a person believes can produce instant weakness recordable weakness in every cell of the human body fascinating well the scriptures take that principle to the heights that what I believe in my heart my innermost spirit that which I meditate on in my mind and speak in my mouth concerning the truth or the not truth of God will either cause me to receive divine strength infused into me or it will block that divine strength. And that's why in James, I believe chapter 3, it speaks of your tongue, the words that you speak as being the rudder that controls and it says our entire body. Yes. So when our trust our faith pronounces and declares God's thoughts, then we are united to those thoughts. And when we confess and state that our lives, apart from God, are all there is, it produces weakness so that even your young men, even the best of strength, just zeroes down and crashes into the ditch. That's where these people were at. Well, what's God going to do with these people? What's his response? You say, okay, if he loves them. And by the way, I, I think there's a number of people listening to me right now, and you, you can relate to this. I, I don't know what your Babylon is. I, I don't know whatever you feel you did to cause this. But right now, you are feeling very much like this very much like this. You're relating to what I'm saying. Well, what is God's response? You see, we feel, we feel, you see, if God loved us, God really loved us, and, and we presented our case to him, we prayed, and we've asked him, take this away, get us out of here. Well, we're waiting now for God's lightning to hit and to watch all of our enemies wither and die and us on a magic carpet taken back to what used to be, should be, ought to be, and so on. Nothing happens. No. If that's what you're waiting for, nothing is going to happen. That's not what the Lord does. That's not how he answers them. He answers them in verse 28 with two questions. Have you not known? Have you not heard? and goes on to speak of the character and the person of God. How fascinating. God's response to these grumbling, miserable, burned out, wiped out, dropped out people, he doesn't just slam in with a great woo wonder. No, he sits down, sort of over a cup of coffee, and said, I say, haven't you heard? 
I, I like that. Actually, this is God's M.O. right from the Garden of Eden when the very first words that we have after the fall, the Lord is saying, where are you, Adam? What have you done? And so on. Questions. Why? Why, why questions? Because questions engage us. He just doesn't talk at us. He puts a question to us. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? Don't you remember? He engages us, which, you see, our minds get stuck in in the mud of our spiritual blindness and hopelessness and despair. And so the question comes and it awakens us and jolts us out of the mud and points us in the direction of truth, which is foreign to a person who's asking these sort of things. Questions that are going to bring us to remember or put together the revelations that the Holy Spirit has already given to us. And, and, and it's the same in the New Testament. I say this is God's MO. It's his, the way he operates. In the New Testament, I mean, I'm not going to give you scriptures, just if you've read the New Testament, you'll recognize it. He says, do you not know? Okay, what's that? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? See, he doesn't come straight in and say, your body is the temple. He says, don't you know? There's always this. Or what is it in Thessalonians, at least, maybe more than that, he says, I would not have you ignorant. I want you... And the prayers of Paul in Ephesians, Colossians is that we shall know what only God knows. That, That he wakes us up. He engages us. He's not a do-stuff for us. He's not a pagan deity that just zaps you from some distant heaven. He comes. In, actually, in Isaiah chapter 1, remember, I'm sure you know the scripture, he says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let's have a talk. Let's chat over coffee. Do you hear what you're saying? Come on. Don't you know? I can't believe that you really mean what you're saying here. That your way is hidden from me and I don't care about you. You know better than that. What's he doing? He's arresting their thoughts and he's infusing the thoughts with truth. Yeah, he says, Father does know. Father does know. And and far father cares and he loves. Don't don't you know? He's not a local god of Babylon. Rather Jerusalem. God doesn't live in Jerusalem. So that now you're here. Well, he he's still there in Jerusalem. No, that's pagan deities that have. places in which they live. Don't you know, we're to, I, I'm the creator, he says. I'm the creator. I'm the eternal God. And the eternal God who does not change. The God, I don't have moods. 
I I'm not here today and I've forgotten about you tomorrow. I'm not all excited today and then down tomorrow. No, I am the creator who never changes. And he says, you may be weary, weary to the max, weary to the point of exhaustion, but, but I'm never tired. I never need a nap. I never even have to stop for a minute to catch my breath and have a glass of water. No. He says, I'm never, never weary. I'm never strengthless. He says, the answer to your situation, as you're sitting there going over your misery, he says, the, the answer is, stop looking at your situation. Stop exalting your feelings and look away to me and realize who I am. You're saying I changed my mind about you. I'm not caring about you anymore. Well, dump that thought. That's ridiculous. Haven't you heard? I'm the creator. I'm the beginning of life. I called life forth out of nothing. I'm the sustainer. I'm the upholder of life. Even Babylon, by the way. Uh, no, you... You're living out your life in the middle of me. But fast forward this into the New Testament. The Creator, this Creator who's talking to them here in the New Testament, about 700 years from when this was written, in the New Testament, the Creator, upholder of all things and persons, enters into the human. He's not only the God who is above us and beyond us, creator, but he's the creator who now actually comes inside his creation and becomes human. Now, if you thought creation was power, think about this. If you Look at Genesis 1, and God said, let it be, and it was. You say, well, that, that's power. That must be the absolute of power. No. No, that was the introduction. Introduction to God's power. God's power began to be really seen when this Creator took through Him our human flesh as, as a speck of life, taking the flesh, the humanity of the Virgin Mary in her womb. That boggles the mind. It boggles the mind when this Creator in love, which is ultimate power, love, took the sin of the entire human race upon him and died. When Are there words to say what I'm saying? That the creator of all that is entered into that which he created became the human among us and thus becoming the human died. And 
then rose out of death. Now that's power. That's the power of love. That he so loved the human, he came into the human to heal us, save us, deliver us from the inside and got inside our death and rose from the dead and rising from the dead destroyed death. Now that's, that's power. Or you, you might say he entered into ultimate weakness, which is death. And then he triumphed over that ultimate weakness with ultimate strength, which is resurrection. And remember, we're talking about love. So love would pursue us into the depths of ultimate weakness. And love then gives to us the ultimate strength of love, which is resurrection over all the powers of death and darkness. It, it speaks of, of that power in Ephesians 1 and around verse 19 where it says the exceeding greatness of his power which is usward who believe which is the same power that was exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He said th this is power. Huh. What, what's this text saying? Is saying you don't live this life by natural strength. That's got a limit. You'll be flat on your face in the ditch sooner or later. If you're going to live there in Babylon as my people, you will live by participating in and sharing in my strength. And as I said, Christianity, the gospel, is this verse taken to its most ultimate fulfillment. Look, and it, it, I, this has been sparked in me this week by conversations on telephone and with people. The Christian life, please hear me, the Christian life is not and can never be a natural thing. It doesn't arise from my natural strength, my personality or what you will. So all this stuff of trying to be like Jesus and trying to keep some commands and doing my best and what would Jesus do? No, no, no. That's the young men. That's the Navy SEALs of religion. And they're, they're going to do the triathlon of religion. And what do you get flat on your face? Utterly fall, burned out, dropped out. Of course, Christianity is not a new set of morals. It's not the highest set of morals. It is the wonder of God himself in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, actually sharing his life with us now, which is strength in every dimension, strength at every point. And how do I connect with that strength? Well, he tells me, he says, they that wait upon the Lord... Wait is an Old Testament expression, really. It's, it's in the New Testament, but it's really Old Testament and means trust. To wait upon God in the Old Testament meaning of the word is to trust. Because 
wait, it means to expect, to anticipate. This word does not mean, you know, standing in line at the checkout while some ancient old lady is trying to find her checkbook at the front there, and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait, and, uh, and everybody's sighing. And No, no, no. That, that's not this wait. This wait is on tiptoe of anticipation. This is, is, is waiting, staring through the window for someone beloved who is about to come, and you're, you're waiting for them to show up. It's anticipation to the nth degree. Waiting, expecting, trusting. It is, therefore, transferring my gaze from all of the problems around me and from all the situation I find myself in, transferring my gaze away to him and I'm waiting, expecting of him. I'm not anticipating what these circumstances are going to do or going to take me. I'm anticipating where he shall take me. And interesting, I'll come in a moment to talk about it, but interesting, as in the old, many Old Testament words, they have a picture attached to them. And this word, wait, the picture that is attached to it in the Hebrew language is to weave. You know, when you take strands of wool and you weave them together so that they become something other than what they would be as one strand. It's also used to describe plaiting. You know, you know, plaiting. Uh, when uh, girls with their long hair and they plait them, you know, take three strands and make one, plaiting. Well, that's this word. Interesting. It says waiting on God, trusting, expecting, anticipating Him. The Holy Spirit weaves you together with Him. Interesting. Which explains that the weight upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And that word renew, it might even be in the margin of your Bible. It's so important. In, 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 the, the meaning of that word renew in the Hebrew, maybe should have been into English, is exchange. Those who wait upon the Lord, you're being woven together with Him as you anticipate that He'll be all that He says He is in your life. What happens is an exchange, your, your life, which is flat on your face in the ditch, your, your utter strengthlessness is taken and exchanged for the very strength of God, strength in your innermost spirit from whence your life flows, the strength in your mind to see things as God sees them, strengthen in your emotions with, with the joy and the peace of God, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, even strengthened in the cells of your body, renewed, an exchange takes place. You see, this, all of this, which is Christianity, this is Christianity, this isn't deeper life. <laughs> no. You, you, you wouldn't even get to the ocean unless you see this. This is basic 101 gospel. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So many of my friends, maybe some of you, you're terrified of the Holy Spirit. You put the Holy Spirit 
on the shelf as sort of, I don't know, really something that you read of in the Bible and you think belongs to some wackos called Charismatics or Pentecostals and and you feel safe with the Jesus of the Bible that he died for me. Well, please, let, let's understand the gospel. The gospel... The gospel is not just that Jesus died for you. That actually would be the worst news I ever heard. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then his death was a terrible end. No, the gospel is he rose from the dead. He, he's alive and he told his disciples that he in the fullness of his risen presence would be with them forever. Never leave. And then he ascended. He went into the invisible half of the universe to be face to face with the Father. And it says he took us with him so that we, because of him and through him, are standing there in the presence of the Father. Well, how does that work on earth? I mean, that's a jolly good idea. And that's what many pastors have learned in seminary, and that's all they learned. Uh, and, and there are many conventions, and that's all they say. Hold it. How does that work out on earth? How can I, sitting here in Bandera, Texas, know that I am seated with Christ in heavenly places? I am dwelling in the very presence of the Father, and the divine strength of God is infused into me. How can I know that as a practical day-to-day, hour-to-hour experience? Because the gospel doesn't end with the ascension. The gospel is that having ascended, it says, Acts chapter 2, having ascended, he then sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came on that Jewish feast day of Pentecost. And the very presence of the ascended Jesus and the mighty power of all that took place when he ascended out from death and destruction and crushed Satan underfoot is now made a living reality in me. That's what happened to you when you were born again. And religion told you you mustn't pursue that rise of life, the person of the Spirit within you. No, you mustn't go there. This is all in your head, mate. It's all in your head. Just think it, think it, think it. Study, study, study. Read the Bible, read the Bible. Go to church. We, We substituted studying the Bible for the Holy Spirit, who is the Bible, who is the presence of the living Jesus now in us. And he brings that strength. We exchange our strength our strength that's dropped out, burned out, for the strength of the ascended Jesus, the strength that overcame death, that overcame Satan, that delivered from sin, that releases into us the very love of God. The Holy Spirit works that into us. The Holy Spirit is my resident friend. He's my resident guide. He's my resident explainer of Scripture. Oh, yeah. Huh. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And if, if, if our... <laughs> oh, bless my friends, and I mean that. 
whose gospel ends before even the, the, the books of the gospel end. They, they're terrified to, to say the rest of the New Testament is about this, this Holy Spirit, this presence of Jesus with me by God, the Holy Spirit. He's working his life in me. This, this is where the strength comes from. And that strength is grace. I suppose I should have said that earlier. But we, we covered that a few weeks ago. My strength is paralleled in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Strength, grace. Grace is the utter giving of God in the Holy Spirit by which we are enabled, empowered, upheld, carried where we could never go in our natural strength and by our struggles and tries. The Holy Spirit takes us. It's ultimate revelation, uh, relationship. You see, this is it. We're woven together. You, you take a little piece of cotton and take great massive ropes and you weave them together, and that little piece of cotton could say those great ropes are my strength. Because now they're woven together, the strength of the ropes has become the strength of the cotton, you see. And you have been woven together with the Holy Trinity through the work of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit in you. You're woven, and there's been an exchange of strengths. It's the gospel. Come on, you know Surely you know some of the scriptures anyway. What, what is it said? Paul, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And then in, further in that same epistle of Colossians, he says, Christ, who is our life? In Philippians, he says, Christ who strengthens me, or the Greek is infuses his strength into me. What did Jesus say? Jesus, John 15 says, abide in me. Take up your dwelling inside of me as I take up my dwelling inside of you. I live, Galatians 2. I live, said Paul, yet not I. It is Christ who lives in me. Hey, have you ever seen in John chapter 17 where Jesus plainly says that the love that we Christians love with is his love in us. Love one another as I have loved you, not by your jolly religious trying, but the love of Christ in us. Then he says, my joy I give to you. Then he said, my peace I give to you. Then he says, I've given you my glory. And then he says, you are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Come on, get it. Look, the divine strength of God's love in you to live this Christian life in the middle of this Babylon, God's strength in you to walk in peace and joy, when there's pressure all around you and things seem to be collapsing. That's unearthly. Unearthly. It's the result of the Holy Spirit infusing this life into you. Unearthly life. It's God's life. 
life of Christ ministered to you by the Holy Spirit in you. That's the gospel. And you see, it produces what we've got earthly words for it, but it's an unearthly thing we're trying to describe. So we talk about this love that is is the key word to all of Christianity. But please don't confuse that with human love. It's got nothing to do with human love. Human love has always got strings attached. I know know what we say at the wedding service, but human love is flawed at its heart. Human love. And of course, the way it's used today is utterly ridiculous. It defies even Webster's Dictionary when they talk about a one-night sexual stand as love. No, forget every human definition of love. It's not that we're talking about. We're talking about this unearthly love, God love, the love of the Holy Trinity, now being worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And when we say peace, we don't mean, you know, in the world meaning it means the absence of war and trouble. Well, we don't mean that. No, the, the word in the New Testament, this unearthly peace, it passes human comprehension, says Paul, because it is peace. Peace with God. I look God face in the face and we smile at each other. It, it means a strong peace that even overcomes the rage of my enemy, peace. In the middle of trouble, complete peace. It's And joy. See, the world just means happiness. Sick, sick happiness. Because the word happiness comes from the word happen or hap, which means chance, fate, whatever washed up on the shore of your life, the haps. And if I like the haps, the chance things that happen, then we're happy and rapidly turn unhappy because we wish they'd unhappen, you know. Oh, that's, see, you were saved from happiness, for goodness sake. Joy, oh, now that's something different. Joy is, is God's own possession. Joy, there's no such thing as unjoy. This joy is there even when they locked them up in jail. They sang with such joy that even the walls collapsed. Another one is patience, you see. That's part of being strong to handle life. You're not going to go very far in life without patience. And you hear these stupid things in church foyers. You know, after the meeting, you hear people all talking their religious buzzwords. And, and, and they say, well, you, know, you, do, you never pray for patience, you see. That's daft. You're talking, as if, if, if you're talking as if God's patience is the same as this miserable thing that's to be found in religion and moral persons when with a face that looks like a dead broomstick they're gritting their teeth and they're trying to get through life uh, and they're the most miserable people to be around because they're, they're being patient. Well, you know, when you've been for two hours on the phone with AT&T and then they come on and say, thank you for your patience, and you're ready to smash the phone in their face. That's, that's not biblically. That, that, that's, that's, that's totally of this world. No, patience in the Bible is something else altogether. In fact, it talks about patience with joyfulness. 
It is such a strength within that is accompanied with such joy that you're able to go on and keep going and keep going on. You see what I mean? It's, it's strength. It's not this other stuff that uh, even when you're, you're able to do a triathlon in all the morals and rules of religion, you're still going to end up in the ditch. Maybe you won't do it publicly, but you, you certainly do it in the silence of yourself. Because then there's righteousness, isn't there? Righteousness describes this life of strength. It's righteousness. Well, you, you ask the average churchgoer, what is righteousness? They tell you basically it's keeping all the rules. It's keeping the Ten Commandments and everything else the church says to do. No, it isn't. Huh. Righteousness, you see, the biblical word righteousness means to have a right relationship of trust. In the love of God as he loves you and you walk arm in arm together, laughing together because you're in relationship with him who loves you through Christ. And faith, well, you find that in the self-help section, don't you? It's, uh, you know, believe and grow rich and all that sort of stuff. No, that's not faith. It's, at best, you could say it's faith in faith, faith in yourself straight out of Satan's mouth in the Garden of Eden. No, faith is complete resting in the faith of God, believing in what God believes concerning himself, concerning Jesus and his work, concerning you as you now are through Jesus. On and on I could go. This is unearthly. This is sharing in the very strength of God himself. So Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and that word, in fact, it's even in the Amplified Version, which is a very conservative translation. But, but it says, uh, um, I can do all things through Christ who infuses his strength with mine. I, I'm, I'm infused it. I have an unearthly, a divine strength is, is given to me. Now that's grace. What a gift, what a gift. And it's custom made for this minute. That as I find myself in this moment, there's grace. That is, there is this divine strength for this minute. Facing a situation where I need love for the long haul long suffering and patience well it says colossians 1 what is it 9 10 11 where, where it says that you would be strengthened with, with the the power of his might unto all long suffering see love is triumphant love raises you above all the cloying sucking swamp of this world and you, you rise beyond and when you face the devil you don't do it screaming at the devil you sit back you rest in, in, into this strength that has already overcome Satan that's why it says in Ephesians 6 you stand and having done all stand why? because it begins that passage in verse 10 by, by saying be strong in the power of his might 
his strength. Everything that came out of the tomb in the resurrection is now made available for you and I to participate in and live out in our home, in our works, in our most intimate personal lives, in our problems and crises, in our joys and delights, wherever we find ourselves. It's not I, said Paul, it's Christ who lives in me. So, you find yourself right in the middle of this? I have a strong feeling that we have people who are right in the middle of something they would call Babylon. Then let's begin by stopping all those inner dialogues and certainly all those words that spew out of our mouths. Stop it. And look through this situation to the unchanging God in Jesus Christ who is the truth in this situation. And recognize that you are in Christ and therefore you have the same. You share, you participate in the relationship of Jesus with the Father. You know the love of the Father as Jesus does. That's who you are. He's not passed over your case. And you look at him with expectancy for his strength to be poured into you. Do you remember Jesus? And remember Jesus is among us as genuine man showing us how we were always intended to live. And do you remember there's, well, it says 5,000 men and women and children. So make it 15,000 people. 15,000 hungry people. And Jesus has five loaves and two fishes. And do you remember what it says? And Jesus looking into heaven. That's into the immediate, and I mean immediate, here and now, presence of the Father. Jesus did not look at 15,000 hungry people because he might have then wondered where is he going to get anything to feed them. Nor did he look at five loaves and two fishes because he would have to say that's not enough to feed them. But he looked into heaven, right into his Father's face of absolute all-powerful love and compassion that says everything's okay. You don't look at your house that has just gone through what it's gone through. You don't look at where you stand in terms of your employment. You don't look at where you stand in impossible financial situation. You look to your Father because you are in Christ And you can look at the Father and know you are his son, his daughter. You look to the Father and you expect of him. You anticipate, you receive strength for this moment which will cause you in your innermost person, in your mind and emotions, even in your body, to transcend this, to be seated with Christ so that you you are receiving the wisdom, the know-how, the what to do, the creative ideas, 
You're receiving the love and the long-suffering and the patience and the joy and the peace. Yes, you're receiving it all because that's the strength. That's the grace of God that infuses you with divine strength. And you become more than a conqueror. Well, I think that's it for tonight. If you, if you heard some noise while I was speaking, um, the, the chap who mows our lawn was not told that I'm here at this hour talking to you. So please forgive me if there was that background noise. Well, now, the God who is almighty, all strong love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may he bless you with the opening of the eyes, with the most intimate conversation, to bring you to see and to know who you truly are in the midst of this present evil age, that you shall transcend your situation and walk as more than a conqueror through him who loved you. So I bless you and declare that is the way it is. Amen.